Right, well, good afternoon, everybody. Um, for those of you who don't know me, I'm Chris Budd. I'm the Gresham Professor of Geometry, and I'm doing a series of talks this year on maths and the making of the modern world. And next year, this will evolve into a series of talks on maths and the making of the future world. Okay, so today we have the somewhat scary topic of quantum theory. And I've called this talk The Quantum Mathematician uh, to show you a little bit how some of, them, uh, some of the mathematical ideas which um, have emerged over the last few years have helped us understand quantum theory a bit. But I agree with most people I've been chatting to um, uh, uh, as we've been waiting for the lecture to start that quantum theory is a somewhat mysterious and scary subject. So I'll try and make it a little bit less mysterious and hopefully a little bit less scary in this talk. Um, and the approach I'm going to use is I'm going to kind of give you a history of the way that quantum theory was developed over the course of the 20th century. And then we'll have a look at the impact that it is having on 21st century technology. Okay, so that, that's the plan for this talk. So if I was giving this talk at the end of the 19th century, um, if I was giving a talk on physics, I would be in a very buoyant mood. Uh, because at the end of the 19th century, physicists, and here we have some splendid 19th century physicists, I think one of them is Michael Faraday, um, were pretty confident that they understood what was going on. They had rules of physics, uh, for example, rules for thermodynamics or electromagnetism or mechanics, which explained the way the world worked. They were pretty sure they got it all right, and all that was needed to be done was to work out a few of the constants in the formulae that they were using, and then the world would be predictable, and physics would basically have finished. Um, well, it wouldn't finish in terms of explaining, but they wouldn't need to find anything more. So that's where we were at the end of the 19th century. Okay, there were a few little wobbles around which hadn't been quite resolved, things like radioactivity, which had uh, been discovered uh, by Becquerel uh, towards the end of the 19th century, and things like x-rays, which Röntgen had discovered, I talked about uh, in one of my lectures earlier on this year. But they felt that these were just sort of tidying up exercises and uh, wouldn't require too much effort to sort out. So that's where we were at the end of the 19th century. Um, and why they got to this position? Well, it was largely due to this guy, Newton. Um, and Newton, in 1692, uh, essentially started modern science as we know it, when he wrote the book, The Principia. And in The Principia, he formulated the laws of mechanics and the law of gravity. And he also gave a mathematical framework for being able to take those laws and use them to explain the universe in a deterministic way so that you could predict what was going on using my subject, the subject of mathematics. And this was incredibly successful uh, as a theory, Newton's laws 
uh, work brilliantly for a long time. They still do work brilliantly for things on our sort of scale. On a human scale, if you want to design a bridge, you use Newton's laws. If you want to drive a car, you use Newton's laws. So um, they had done very well. Um, and in the 19th century, there was this kind of triumph. Um, and it was a triumph in part due to this guy. Um, this is uh, Maxwell, James Clark Maxwell, who, um, working in Cambridge, uh, formulated the laws of um, electromagnetism, where he took the laws of electricity, the laws of magnetism, combined them together, and found that that um, combination allowed him to understand light and radio, and it was a great unification of the three subjects of electricity, magnetism and optics, into one set of equations. Um, and those equations um, show clearly at the time that light was a wave, a wave made of electricity and magnetism. So this was fantastic, and you know the physicists were very, very confident that they had the world nailed. Okay, and that was the end of the 19th century. As we all know, the 20th century brought in many changes. In this museum, you can see uh, the exhibition about votes for women. This was a big change at the beginning of the 20th century. You had the invention of the car, the radio, um, and the aeroplane. Huge technological breakthroughs. Um, but perhaps one of the biggest things that happened at the beginning of the 20th century was the realisation that this comfortable world of physics that had, you know, uh, everyone was so happy with was completely and absolutely wrong. Okay. It wasn't that the laws were wrong, it's just that, that there was so much more out there and um, the uh, little crack that these wobbles of radioactivity and x-rays shone was the crack into a whole new way of looking at things. Um, so all this was to change, as I say, and it changed pretty early on with two huge theories. Um, in 1905, um, Einstein, very much influenced by Maxwell, very much influenced by Maxwell, uh, brought in the special theory of relativity. And the special theory of relativity gave a completely new way of looking at things which were very large and went very, very fast. Okay. And um, Einstein's theory of relativity, say, built on Maxwell's theory, but went way, way, way beyond that. And pretty well at the same time, along came quantum theory, which is the subject of today, which gave a theory of what was happening at the very small scale, at the scale of the atom or um, smaller than the atom. Um, so these two theories have gone on to dominate 20th and now 21st century uh, science. Um, they've completely transformed our way of looking at the world. Um, and as well as transforming the way of looking at the world, they have led to much of the technology that we now take for granted, that we now take for granted. Um, in particular, quantum theory, this mysterious theory is... Um, at the heart of devices such as the modern computer. And for good or bad, the modern computer is changing our lives. Okay? If it wasn't for our understanding of quantum theory, we wouldn't have built the modern computer. So this really has dominated our lives. 
Um, so those of you who have been following my lectures will um, have realised that uh, I've been basing quite a lot of them on what are called the eight great technologies. So the eight great technologies are um, eight technologies which the government feels we should invest in, uh, in terms of money, but also in terms of research, um, because they will lead us into the future and will lead the UK um, forward in technological advance. Um, and recently, they've decided to add a ninth technology onto the eighth great technologies, and the ninth technology is quantum technology, the technology that I will be getting onto um, towards the end of this talk. So that's how important it is. It's up there with machine learning, which I did last year, week, um, with uh, energy, um, with robots, and um, even, even the production of food. That's one of the other technologies um, as something the government feels will be dominant force in the next uh, uh, few years. Um, so that's how important it is. Without quantum theory, we would not be able to have the technology that we enjoy today. However, and this is the essence of these conversations I was having uh, earlier, quantum theory is deeply, deeply mysterious. It runs completely contrary to, quotes common sense. Um, now, I, as a mathematician, I am familiar with much of what I do running contrary to common sense. Um, I'm often told off for doing things which are not particularly commonsensical. Um, but uh, you wonder whether common sense is just a product of our own minds and of our own way of looking at things, and really there's more to the universe than common sense. And this is what quantum theory does. Um, it kind of opens our mind to a completely new way of looking at things um, and questions the nature of reality and the nature that a mathematical description of reality helps us um, uh, put things together. Um, so here's a couple of quotes which I, I really like. Um, the first one is by Roger Penrose, a great hero of mine, um, he, one of the most um, important uh, mathematicians uh, of the 20th century, um, very famous for his work on gravity um, and also on tessellations. Um, I will quote this in full. Quantum theory has two bodies of facts in its favour. One is that it agrees totally with experiment, incredibly well with experiment. Um, and the second, which for me as geometry professor is very appealing, it's based on beautiful, beautiful mathematics. Mathematics which makes your eye water, it's so nice. Um, the only problem is that it makes no sense. Okay, slight problem. And there we are. Order of merit. He, he knows what we're talking about. Um, and here's Richard Feynman, who won the Nobel <coughs> Prize for his work on quantum theory and has written some of the best books on quantum theory and was one of the pioneers and leaders of quantum theory in the 20th century. And he said, I can safely say nobody understands quantum mechanics. And if nobody includes Richard Feynman, then I feel I'm in good company. Okay. So there we are. That's what I've got to try and get round. A subject which nobody understands and makes absolutely no sense, but somehow works. Somehow it works. Okay. So that's the plan. Right. So um, I thought when thinking about this talk that the best way to, to describe quantum theory was to take you through a journey for how we came to um, understand 
the way that quantum theory works in the universe. Um, and um, the um, story all starts with, with this guy, uh, which is Max Planck. So he is generally regarded as one of the two fathers of quantum theory. Quantum theory essentially had two births, and he was the father for the first birth. Um, so um, Max Planck was studying uh, a fairly, in a sense, a mundane topic. Um, he was looking at how a body, which, when it's heated, gives off radiation. Okay, so this is called uh, black body radiation. Um, and uh, basically, the higher the temperature of a body, the more radiation it gives off. And this is an incredibly important concept in climate change. And next year, when I look about um, how math predicts the future, I'll be talking about climate change and be talking about black body radiation quite a lot. Um, but one thing that was bothering the uh, 19th century physicists, they hadn't kind of worked out, was that if a body emits radiation, then it would commit radiation at all the wavelengths that Maxwell predicted uh, radiation could occur at. So th those go from the low frequencies, radio waves, infrared and so on, through the optical frequencies, um, and then up to the higher frequencies uh, like ultraviolet uh, and beyond. And the problem was, um, the basic prediction from uh, Maxwell's classical theory was that it would emit radiation at all these frequencies and therefore would emit essentially an infinite amount of radiation. And that's not what was observed. And this was a, a paradox at the time, and uh, Planck had a, a thought about it, and he proposed that energy um, was, um, uh, came in sort of discrete amounts. He called these quanta uh, after the Latin uh, for um, things, and um, that the energy of the quanta was proportional to the frequency. So in other words, the higher the frequency, um, the more energy would be produced. And that kind of limited the amount of energy that could come out of the higher frequencies. Um, and the proportional constant was this number h, and that has been called Planck's constant ever since. So this was the first break with traditional physics. Um, and using this very simple formula, that energy was proportional to frequency, um, he came up with this somewhat scary equation here, um, which I'll explain. This scary equation tells you how much um, energy is emitted at a frequency f and a temperature t. Um, I won't bother you with saying how that's derived or even scaring you with um, asking you to understand it, except to say that's what the shape of the curve looks like uh, for the different wavelengths. So the amount of um, energy peaks in this sort of area and then drops down for small wavelengths uh, of high frequency. Um, and the point about this was that it agreed completely with experiment. Okay, so um, using this kind of basic quantum idea, Planck came up with this formula, they tested it in this experiment, and it worked. And that's how science works. Okay? You propose an idea, you see what the implications of those ideas are, you test them against theory. So people started to think there was something in this idea that energy came in discrete amounts and was proportional to frequency. But they still didn't really believe it. Um, and then a little bit later, uh, about 1903 or 1904, 
Some more experiments were conducted where light was shone onto metal. Uh, so you'd have a, a, a piece of metal here and you'd shone light onto it. And they found, to their surprise, that the amount of uh, the energy of the electrons that came off the metal when the light was shined onto it um, didn't depend upon the amplitude of the light, uh, but depended on the frequency of the light. Now, why was that important? It was important because Maxwell um, predicted that the energy of light from his equations uh, was proportional to the amplitude. That was the size of the waves. But this seemed to run contrary. It seemed to be that the energy um, seemed to be related to the frequency. This, okay, was again a bit of an anomaly. And it was sorted out by no less a man than Albert Einstein. So there's Albert Einstein. Um, we all associate Einstein with the theory of relativity, and rightly so, rightly so. But in 1905, however, I don't know how he did it, I think he was at the time still a patent clerk. He published three papers, 1905, three papers. Each of those papers, on its own, would have got him a Nobel Prize. Okay. The most famous paper was the one on the special theory of relativity. That did not get him a Nobel Prize. He also wrote another paper on Brownian motion, which is sort of understanding how molecules move around randomly, which has led to the kinetic theory of gases and, and a huge understanding of the way that gases behave. That didn't get him the Nobel Prize. But he wrote another paper on the photoelectric effect. Third time lucky, that did get him the Nobel Prize. Okay. I don't know what he was, you know, it must have been something in the air. That, that was an incredible year, 1905. Um, ten years later, he published his general theory of relativity, which was an equally um, extraordinary um, achievement. Okay, so here was Einstein, and he came up with this incredible concept that um, light, as well as being a wave, also was like a stream of particles. And he called these particles photons, and the photons had discrete energy, and the amount of energy was, as Planck had predicted, um, this number h times the frequency. And he explained the photoelectric effect very simply. A photon, one of these sort of particles of light, would hit the metal, um, and every time it hit, if it had enough energy, it would knock out an electron, um, and that electron would have this energy, the same energy as the photon, um, and the more photons you had, the more electrons would come off. And that was his explanation, and again, it completely described the photoelectric effect, and it gave everybody confidence that perhaps light had this particle-like nature. But already, that was beginning to look a bit mysterious and strange, because... Maxwell's equations predicted that light was a wave. There was tons and tons of evidence that light was a wave. And here was Einstein coming along saying, maybe light is also a stream of particles. Newton thought it was a stream of particles, but that idea had, had been rejected. So light seemed to be sort of having a schizophrenic attitude to light. It was particles and it was waves. What was going on? OK. So um, carry on with the story. Uh, around about 1912, um, Rutherford, uh, 
Um, up in Manchester at the time, Rutherford came from Nelson in New Zealand. I've been to see his memorial there. Um, so he was working in Manchester um, and he was investigating the atom and by shining alpha particles at the atom and seeing how they were bounced off, he came to the conclusion that the atom was mostly empty space. At the centre of the atom was a nucleus which was positively charged and that was bouncing alpha particles off and orbiting the atom rather like a sort of solar system were electrons. Okay, so the, the electrons would go around the atom um, and the theory for that was that the, the positive charge would attract the electrons towards it um, and that would um, cause them basically to accelerate towards the nucleus and, and if you spin around the nucleus then, then that um, balances out that, that you have centripetal acceleration which, which allows that to happen. So that's Rutherford's model of the electron, of the atom, which again agreed with the experiments that he was doing, but had a slight problem. And the slight problem was that it wouldn't work according to Maxwell's theory. So Maxwell's theory says that if you accelerate electrons, then you emit radiation. Now I do this all the time. We do it all the time. Um, if you take out your mobile phone and talk to somebody, then the um, electrons in the antenna accelerate um, and that causes them to give out radiation and that radiation goes off to another phone and allows you to speak to them. That's how a phone works. Um, if the electrons going around the atom gave off energy by accelerating, then they would lose energy and would collapse into the atom and the atom would just go poof and stop existing. So it was a nice theory but it just didn't work. Um, and it was fixed by the second person who we can argue is the uh, father, second father of quantum theory, uh, which was the Danish mathematician stroke physicist, uh, Niels Bohr. Uh, Niels Bohr uh, had a marvellous uh, quote, which I use a lot when I think about climate change. He said, it is very hard to predict anything especially about the future. Okay. Um, the other story about him is that he had a horseshoe hanging above his uh, laboratory, and someone said, why have you got a horseshoe? And Niels Bohr said, well, to bring me luck. And uh, someone said, surely you don't believe in that, do you? And he says, I understand it works even if you don't believe in it. <laughs> so that was Niels Bohr. Um, and he not by luck, but by brilliance, came up with the idea that the way the atom might work was that the electrons would orbit, um, not in any old orbit, but with orbits of um, uh, energy, which was um, multiples of these sort of quantum uh, levels that Planck had predicted, these discrete amounts. And that providing it, it stuck to that quantum level, it would be stable. That was Bohr's model of the, of the atom. Um, We'll show you presently that that has to be extended. Um, but with that model, um, he had these kind of energy levels corresponding to the number of quanta. Um, he then said if an electron does lose energy, it would do it by jumping from one orbit to the other. It would then emit energy. This would be these famous photons. We can work them out. And he came up with this formula uh, that the energy uh, between different orbits uh, was... 
inversely proportional to the square of this number. And this was a formula which, again, checked out exactly with experiment. So that gave people confidence. So that was quantum theory up to about the beginning of the First World War. Uh, in the First World War, people had other things on their minds. Um, but at the end of the First World War, um, Bohr, again, played a huge role in um, the next phase of quantum theory. Um, and what he did was he moved back to uh, uh, Copenhagen um, and founded the Copenhagen Institute for Quantum Theory, which is now called the Niels Bohr Institute. And there he is. Um, and he started thinking very differently from this kind of mechanistic view of quantum theory that they'd had up to then, which is to think that maybe what's happening at an atomic level isn't something we can know exactly. It's more we just know probabilities. It's like if you toss a coin, I don't know that coin will come down heads or tails, but I can say it will, with probability, about a half come down a head, proud a half come down a tail. Um, and so rather than knowing exactly where an electron was, you might have some probabilistic uh, 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 way of describing where it probably would be. Okay. So this was um, his view. It's very different from the view up to then, but it's a view which has turned out to be correct. correct. This was called the Copenhagen interpretation. Now, as I said, one thing that Einstein had come up with was this idea that light could be both um, like a wave and like a particle. Um, and de Broglie, who, came, who was in the early 1920s, came up with the revolutionary idea, well, if light can be light, a wave and a particle, maybe other things can be like that. Um, maybe electrons can be like that. Maybe an electron can behave sometimes like a wave and something like a particle. Maybe all of us are a bit like a wave and a bit like a particle. Again, this is weird. How can something be a wave and a particle together? Um, but this was verified by an experiment which was conducted um, in the 20s called the double slit experiment, where an electron beam gun, something which just shot out electrons, um, they put a, a couple of slits uh, in front of it. Um, and if you do this with light, um, then you can see what's called an interference pattern. Uh, on a screen behind, you get black and white uh, areas where the waves and the light interfere constructively or destructively with each other. Um, you see this very often. If you wear glasses, you often see interference patterns, particularly if it's raining. Um, what was weird, if you do this for electrons, it did exactly the same thing. Come on, this can't happen. If you've got a hole there, the electrons will go through it and hit there, or hit there, you should get two white beams uh, forming. Instead, you've got an interference pattern exactly consistent with what you'd expect if the electron was behaving like a wave. So the electrons seem to be behaving like a wave and a particle. What was going on? This, this was weird. Um, so the first person to kind of really get his head around what was really going on was Schrodinger. Now, I like Schrodinger. Um, Schrodinger, you, when you think of a mathematician or a scientist, you think of someone that sits in their office all the time and does nothing other than science. Okay. Schrodinger was not like that. So Schrodinger was an Austrian physicist who, um, to all intents and purposes, had three wives 
simultaneously. Um, possibly, in th I think, in three different countries, or maybe two in the same country at once. I got a bit confused. He had so many. Um, whilst he was married to one of them, he went on a holiday with a, one of his mistresses and um, was so, I don't know, creative during that time um, that he came up with the um, idea of the Schrodinger equation, which helps us understand um, the nature of the subatomic universe. Um, when he'd done all this, um, when he'd done all his work, he, he, he actually um, went over to Dublin uh, in the 1940s at the invitation of De Valera um, and spent um, most of the remainder of his professional life um, in Dublin. Okay, so uh, uh, he was a rather important person in the Irish Free State. So his idea was that you have a function psi, um, which is a function of space x and t time, which um, describes the probability of um, a, a particle, like an electron, being at this point x in the time t. So it just describes the probability. You have to integrate this over a region of space to know the probability of, it be, of the particle being in that region. It doesn't exactly tell you where it will be at any one time. See, this is his wave function. Um, and he wrote down the equation for that. So we're going to have our first scary equation of the day. Uh, so brace yourselves, guys. Uh, here we are. Wow. Um, this is possibly... Well, it's hard to say what's the most important equation in physics. Uh, e equals mc squared is pretty important. F equals ma, law of gravity. But it's up there with them. This is Schrodinger's equation. This is the fundamental equation for quantum theory. Now, I don't expect uh, most of you in the audience to understand this. Uh, I'll just describe a few things. This tells you how the wave function changes with time. Um, this weird operator here tells you how it changes with space. Um, this thing here tells you the um, energy of the system. So if you have an atomic nucleus, this is something you can write down. Um, H bar is... Um, the Planck constant divided by 2 pi, it's called the Dirac constant. Here is the number i, the square root of minus 1, the imaginary number. It shouldn't really exist, but there it is, playing this huge role in this amazing equation. And that equation uh, describes everything. As Feynman said, that equation is the equation for a frog. Okay. Feynman was right. Of course he was right. So um, this is Schrodinger's equation, which, as I say, Schrodinger came up with on this holiday with his mistress. Okay. Um, I may or may not recommend that as a good way of coming up with equations. But anyway, um, and this is what a typical solution of this equation looks like. It looks like a wave. And this helps us understand why particles behave like waves, why an electron behaves like a wave in a particle, because an electron, um, to a certain extent, obeys this equation. Um, and um, because it obeys this equation for its probability, it has that sort of solution, and that allows you to work out the probability of it being in one place or not. Now, the problem with this equation is it's damn hard to solve. Uh, we do solve it nowadays with big computers, and uh, because we can solve it with big computers, we can do chemistry, because this equation describes chemistry very well, very well. Um, at the time, they could really only solve it for one problem, um, and that was the, the hydrogen atom, 
where you had a single nucleus and a single electron. Okay. But it was solved in that case, and um, you can find the wave functions for that, and you, you can find the allowable wave functions, and the allowable wave functions precisely corresponded to the orbits that Bohr had come up with by a different um, way of thinking about things. This is a much better way of thinking about things, and it reproduced Bohr's results. This wonderful picture here um, shows you the various different types of orbit um, which are predicted by the wave function solutions of Schrodinger's equations. There are many different types of orbit, all of which um, you can verify um, experimentally. So Schrodinger's equation really works. Um, what was interesting, though, was that um, in the Bohr um, Institute, uh, there were many other people, um, and one of these was a guy called... Oh, oh sorry. I'll get on to that in a sec. Apologies. Say one thing very important. Um, this equation here is um, what we call a linear equation. It's a linear equation because um, this number psi here, here appears like this and here like this. There are no squares or anything. And um, that means that this is a very important property of mathematics. Many of the equations I work with are linear. That if, if you have um, psi 1 as a solution and psi 2 as a solution, so you have two possible wave functions um, uh, which describes something, then so is um, what you get when you add them together. And this tells us something completely weird. It means that a particle can actually simultaneously exist in two states at the same time. Um, this is called the superposition principle. This is where uh, quantum theory seriously starts to de de deviate from common sense, that something can be two things at once, um, fortunately, common sense doesn't apply to the universe, so it actually can be in two states at the same time, and we're going to see presently how this is very important in technology. Okay. So, um, at the same time as Schrodinger, there was another guy called Heisenberg, and he had a very different perspective. There's Heisenberg. Um, he and Schrodinger more or less came to blows about this. Um, and again, this is where the maths gets a bit scary. Um, he uh, wanted to formulate all of quantum theory in terms, not in terms of waves like Schrodinger did, but in terms of matrices and matrix functions. If you don't know what a matrix is, uh, don't really worry. I'm not going to go into any detail. But basically, these are mathematical operators, mathematical operators um, which are important in things like Google. Um, and he, his view was that um, lots of things were happening in the quantum theoretic world, um, like this sort of supposition of states, and you never know exactly what's happening until you look at it. By looking at something, you force it to make a kind of decision about what it's doing. And what it's doing um, turns out to be um, related to the, what are called the eigenvectors of these matrices. And this seems a very different perspective from Schrodinger's. Schrodinger's was more, well, there's a wave function. I can compute it. I know what's going on. Um, but again, when you do computations, you find it worked. Um, and uh, Pauli, who was another one of Bohr's group, was able to derive properties of the hydrogen atom, which were basically the same. So that was Heisenberg's view. Um, Heisenberg also came up with a very important formula, which is this, uh, which is called the uncertainty principle, um, which says that if you make an error in, if you have an uncertainty in measuring the position of something, which is x, delta x, and you have an uncertainty in measuring its momentum, delta p, um, 
then these two, um, the product was bounded by this number. And that basically means that if, if you make a very small error in position, then you have a large uncertainty in momentum. Or if you have a large uncertainty in a small uncertainty in momentum, you have a un large uncertainty in position. And, and this is, a sort of, again, one of the fundamental laws of the universe. You can't know exactly the position and the momentum of something at the same time. Um, you similarly can't know the frequency and um, the duration of a signal at the same time. Um, I'll illustrate this with a joke. Okay. And the joke goes as follows. Um, I have a glass of water in front of me. There's my glass of water. That'll do. And you ask a quantum theorist, is that glass of water half full or half empty? And the only thing the quantum theorist can say is, I don't know. Okay. <laughs> and the reason is that half, if something is full, the implication is that it's filling up. In other words, its momentum is positive. If something is half empty, the implication is that it's losing water, and so um, its momentum is negative. If you say it's half something, you are making a very precise description of its position. So you know its position exactly, it's a half, and if you know delta x exactly, you don't know the momentum, and so you can't tell whether it's full or empty. So there we are. Predicted by that formula there. Okay. If you say, oh, it's vaguely half, then you might be able to do it, but that's not. Okay, so that, that's, um, that was a big debate that was going. Heisenberg and Schrodinger more or less came to blows about this. Um, but it was resolved by this guy. Um, this is Paul Dirac, one of my big heroes. He was born in Bristol. Until recently, I lived in Bristol. Um, he was born quite close to where I lived. He went to Bishop Rhodes Primary School, which is very close to where I live. Um, he went to Bristol University and then went on to Cambridge. Um, he's considered, along with Maxwell, Einstein and Newton um, and Galileo, as one of the greatest physicists of all time. Okay. He's an amazing guy. Um, it's a shame we don't make more of him in the UK. Um, here are some of his achievements. He unified Heisenberg's and Schrodinger's views. He showed that they were equivalent. Um, and he wrote a book about it called The Principles of Quantum Mechanics, which uh, for many years was the fundamental textbook in quantum mechanics. He discovered antimatter. If you watch Star Trek, you'll know that the Starship Enterprise is powered by antimatter or matter-antimatter reactions. If it hadn't been for Dirac, that would not be possible. <laughs> okay. So he discovered antimatter. He discovered that for the electron, there was an antiparticle called the positron. Um, you know, uh, so every particle has its antiparticle. He invented a thing called the Dirac delta function, which is one of the key um, techniques in mathematical engineering. Okay, I use it all the time. Um, really brilliant. Um, but what is um, possibly his biggest achievement was that he found the um, equation for the electron, which was a sort of an extension of Schrodinger's equation, which allowed um, quantum theory to be combined with Einstein's special theory of relativity. So he combined quantum theory with the special theory of relativity. Uh, again, this is Dirac's equation. It's very, very similar to Schrodinger's equation, the difference being that these things here are, are not numbers, they are matrices. 
Um, and this is one of the, uh, the other great um, equations of all time, the equation for the electron. Um, Ian Farmelow wrote a book about the 18 greatest formulae of all time, and that's one of them. So that's Dirac. Uh, again, I won't go into detail, but um, this equation for the electron um, explained other things about the electron. Um, these have been ex uh, experimentally verified to huge precision, huge precision. Uh, I am pleased to say that Dirac um, is honoured in his home city. This is Bristol, um, and this is the Dirac monument. Uh, you can see it reflected there. It's a spike. Um, anyone that knows about the Dirac delta function will know that this is a very, very fitting tribute to Dirac. Much better than a statue. Um, this is a good description. And if you go to Bristol City Centre, um, to the Science Museum, you can just see it, uh, the sign there. Um, it's opposite the cathedral. You can see the cathedral in the windows. You can see the Dirac Memorial, and also you can go and visit the Science Museum at the same time. Okay, so... Um, this was all sort of happening. The 1920s was this amazing time for the development of quantum theory. And it's sort of summarised by this. This is called, in various texts, the most intelligent photograph ever taken. <laughs> the most intelligent photograph ever taken. It was taken at the 1927 Solvay Conference, which should have put um, finishing touches on, on the quantum theory as it was developing. Um, show you some of the reasons it's so good. There's Dirac. There he is. There's Bohr, there's Einstein, that's Marie Curie, and there's Max Planck. And there's a whole ton of other people there as well. Um, the collective IQ in that photograph is pretty awesome. Okay. Oh, um, de Broglie there, and where's Heisenberg? Oh, there's Schrodinger. Uh, that's Heisenberg, I think, over there. Incredible photograph. Um, bit of a wobble. <laughs> Who's heard of Schrodinger's cat? Most of you, I think, yes. Um, so what's Schrodinger's cat? So this came a little bit later, 1937. Um, Schrodinger um, imagined that you had a cat in the box. There we are. Um, uh, and the box, unlike this one, would be sealed. And uh, a radioactive something would decay. That would cause poison to be emitted and would kill the cat. Um, but because the poison is... Uh, given by some sort of random process you don't know, and so inside that box is a cat, and the cat is both simultaneously alive and dead. And that's Schrodinger's cat. Um, and it's a paradox, and it's a paradox about how the way the world of the microscopic and the world of the macroscopic seem to somewhat untidily fit together. Uh, if anyone watches the Big Bang Theory, um, there was a nice quote by Penny on the Big Bang Theory, and she said, we had a cat once in a box, but we didn't need to open the box to know it was dead. <laughs> um, which is actually quite profound in its own way. So that, that was Schrodinger. OK. And quantum theory up to date. Well, let's bring you up to date now with, with where things are, and then I can tell you about the technology. So after the war, um, we had Richard Feynman, who came along, and he developed quantum field theory, uh, which uh, combined unified quantum theory with optics and the way um, light uh, interacted with things um, and um, was able to show that the electromagnetic force was all to do with the exchange of protons, no, uh, photons. So the photons, uh, these uh, electrons here exchanging photons um, will give that force. And this is the uh, wonderful explanation that we have, not only of the way um, 
electrons and electromagnetic uh, so, uh, charged particles interact, um, but also how, at an atomic level, um, you have um, forces in interacting there. Um, then we came up with action at a distance, and this is something I want to talk about quite a bit because it's going to relate to our technologies. Um, and this is wonderful. This shows you again how science works. Einstein didn't believe in quantum theory. I know he was one of the people that founded it, but he didn't really believe in it. Um, this is a quote from him. It's very imposing, but he never liked this uncertainty. And uh, very famously, he says, God does not throw dice. God does not throw dice. He didn't like this sort of probabilistic way of looking things. He thought everything should be deterministic. His theory of relativity is a deterministic theory. And in order to kind of show that this quantum theory must be wrong, um, he and a couple of others, Einstein, Podolsky and, and Rubus, came up with the thing called the EPR experiment, which is to say if you create two particles at the same time, they have the same wave function that Schrodinger's equation predicts, and that means that if you operate on one function and you observe it and it kind of goes into one of its states, the other particle must instantly go into the same state. These two particles were linked together. This was obviously wrong, completely contradictory to um, um, determinism as he saw it, and therefore quantum theory must be wrong. So this was Einstein's approach. Um, there was a slight problem with that. This was a really, really good idea. And then when they went to look for it in experiments, rather than finding that Einstein was, uh, was well, rather than finding that um, the, they couldn't do this and therefore quantum theory was wrong, they found that they actually existed, um, that it actually happens, that if two particles are created together and become entangled, um, they kind of form a coherent quantum theoretical state, and if you separate them at a, to a large distance, if you do something to one, it immediately affects the other. Bonkers, but it works, and it's been observed. Um, to give you a, sort of some indication as to why this might be true, suppose um, I'm someone, I have a white ball on a black ball, and I turn my back, and someone puts a white ball in one box and a black ball in the other, and then seals the box. And then I take one box with me to the other side of the universe, and I open it, and if I see it's a black ball, I instantly know the other box has a white ball in it. Okay, so that's, it's not quite the same, but it gives you some idea as to why this is true. Okay, so um, let's talk about the role of quantum physics in technology. And there's been sort of two phases in this. Um, and this is phase one. So at the end of the, um, up to the end of the war, all electronics was done with these wonderful things, which are called valves. If you haven't met them, some of the older people in the, in the room might have met them. Um, I'm old enough to have used them quite a lot. That's how big a valve is. Um, it's big, it uses a lot of power, it's not particularly reliable. Um, and um, the valves are now completely replaced in virtually all applications by much smaller devices like transistors or microchips here, which are much smaller, involve much less power, and are far more reliable and work infinitely better. Um, even if they don't glow in the same way. Okay. And where's this technology come from? It's come from quantum theory. It's come from quantum theory. Um, a valve is all to do with electrons going through atom, uh, vacuums, which was reasonably well described by classical theory. Um, these things are uh, to do with um, electrons going through semiconductors. 
Um, and electrons go through semiconductors in a funny way. Some of them just move around like you would expect them to, but others of them hop from one of the sort of orbits that Bohr predicted to another, um, leaving holes as they hop. And the holes themselves move around as though they were particles. And you can only understand electricity conduction in semiconductors if you understand the way holes and electrons move around. These wonderful things here are the equations for those. I put them down there because I work with these a lot. This is part of my job um, to understand these. N and electrons because they're negative, P are holes because they're positive. Um, these are the equations for semiconductors. These are what are used to design chips. Um, and using these sort of equations in 1947, Shockley at Bell Labs designed the transistor. And from the transistor, we get the microchip. From the microchip, we get the computer. From the computer, we get all the problems of the modern world. Okay. So that's that. Um, the other great uh, technology which came out of uh, quantum theory to start with was the laser. Uh, what is a, uh, how do you get lasers? Well, again, you've got these Bohr atoms here, Bohr orbits here. Um, an electron might or be orbiting here. You pump in a whole ton of energy. The, the electrons jump up to what we call an excited state, and then they start jumping back down to the original state. As they jump down, according to the quantum theory, they give off radiation. The radiation has to be at a prescribed frequency. So you get a lot of radiation at an exactly prescribed frequency, and uh, it's all coherent, and that gives us the laser. Want an example? There's an example. There we are. There's a nice coherent laser light. Um, when this was discovered, people said, oh, right, well, jolly good, well done. Um, and lasers were described as a problem, an answer looking for a, a problem. Um, and then what happened? Well, here's one use for them. There's James Bond. Uh, there's Goldfinger being about to be cut in half by a laser. And of course, lasers are used to cut things, very much so. But here are all the many other applications of lasers, so uh, your CD player, your DVDs, all of these things, um, laser printers, uh, rely on the laser, of course, including pointers over there. Okay, so that's the laser. So the laser and the, and the transistor are all products of quantum theory. And I would say the original quantum theory as we were kind of evolving through. But now... We're into what's called quantum technology two. So this is the new generation of quantum theory. Um, and this relies on these kind of spooky, spooky types of quantum theory that um, I've been hinting at. So one of the spooky things is that a particle or something can exist in two states at once simultaneously. Now, in a computer, in your uh, you know, computer, um, uh, energy uh, information is stored in bits. It's a zero or one. It's on or off. Okay. Uh, in a quantum information, something can be simultaneously on and off. Okay. And that's called a qubit, a quantum bit, a quantum bit. It's simultaneously on and off. Um, that means if you have n qubits, rather than storing n amounts of information, you can store two to the power of n. So if you have three. One, you can score one. Two, you can score two. Uh, two, uh, two, sorry, you got two, four, eight, sixteen, and so on. Very rapidly, you can store exponentially large amounts of information. You can store vastly more information uh, with 
allowing these simultaneous things than you could. So this immediately opens up the possibility of storing far more information with quantum theoretical things than you could. Um, and then you operate on these using things called quantum gates. Um, so until for a long time, these were thought to be just very, very theoretical properties. You can never do this, but now people are building them. So, for example, in Oxford, here's a direct quote from, um, from the, the Independent, actually. It's a recent article in the Independent, um, <clears throat> using trapped ions. Um, so using ions and atoms, um, you can start storing things in exactly this way. So this idea of things exacting, existing in many states at once is a reality. It's a reality. Um, and this is sort of um, um, various sort of interesting issues about this. Um, one of the things about quantum information is that uh, the theory says it can be neither created or destroyed. And again, until recently, uh, there was a problem here with black holes because black holes were thought of things which would destroy information. Um, and now we understand that if you look at a wave function which includes not only the black hole but also the other possibilities, you can resolve this and information can exist in many states at once and not be resolved, not be destroyed. Um, where's this going? Um, well, the big application of uh, these sort of qubits is in the field of quantum computing. So some of you may have heard of this. This is going to be the thing which changes all our lives, I predict. Um, so various people, including Feynman, um, predicted or came up with the idea of quantum computing. Um, a quantum computer would, with its power, totally dwarf the power of modern computers. It would just be completely out of this world different um, operating at speeds almost inconceivable today. So these are the things, if we can get them working, will utterly change things. Your computer will, modern computer, you know, the great terabyte, uh, uh, terahertz or whatever thing that you've got will look like a Stone Age axe in comparison with these things. Um, I can't really describe how they work, but basically the way, the way they work is that they have these qubits, the things which can be in several states simultaneously, if something can be in several states simultaneously, it means that you can do loads and loads of things all at the same time. They are what we call the ultimate in parallel computers that every single atom almost becomes a computer and it can do all its operations simultaneously. So this block that we have in computers of time and memory essentially goes away with quantum computers. Um, the reason we haven't got them yet is a bit like Schrodinger's cat. So Schrodinger's cat simultaneously exists in a state of being alive and dead, but of course it doesn't. That cat is either alive or it's dead. Um, and the reason the cat is like that is that at a large scale, this sort of property of coherence that uh, quantum theory has sort of dissipates away. And the difficulty is keeping these um, uh, qubits, which can exist in all the states possible, <coughs> Um, in this state for uh, long enough to do all your algorithms on. That, that's the basic diff problem, um, and that's the problem we have with the size at the moment. But just to say, many governments are funding quantum computing um, to develop them for all these sort of things. And there is one called, if you want to uh, play with a quantum computer, there's one online you can play with, uh, which is a 20 qubit computer. Um, which IBM have put together. So you can actually go onto the website and, and have a play with this thing. And there it is. That's what it looks like. 
Uh, why are we worried about these things? Well, why are we excited about these things? Um, well, the security of our banking system essentially um, relies on the fact that two numbers, when you multiply them together, it's very hard to factorise what you've got. So here's a challenge for you. Uh, see by um, the end of today whether you can factorise these numbers. Okay. Um, it's very, very hard, and the cost of factorising numbers increases exponentially with the number of digits in the number, and that means that if you have a, a number which is, say, a 1,000 digits long, no computer nowadays can, can factorise that, and that is the security of our banking system. All our codes rely on this property that you can't factorise a number, except you can with a quantum computer. So, uh, by the way, these are the prime numbers. So a quantum computer using a thing called Shor's factorization number can factorise numbers. So if we can get a quantum computer to work, banking systems which rely on factorisation become vulnerable and um, therefore bankers start worrying. Um, but at the moment, that's the record. Um, for it, Until recently, the record was 15, so we've done a bit better than that. Okay. Um, I'm running out of time, so I'll just uh, whiz through uh, the next bit and get on to the last bit. So um, just to say um, that quantum theory um, is hugely successful with enormous applications. Uh, still lots of things around we don't understand. We just certainly don't understand the way that quantum theory and general relativity interact, um, although there are various um, efforts at doing this. Um, but the key message I want you to take away from this is at the end of the 19th century, physicists were pretty sure they'd sorted everything out. At the beginning of the 21st century, we haven't got really much idea what's going on out there. <laughs> Thank you very much.